Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Here on Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. I was fascinated that whiskey was what these iconic winemakers chose to drink when they were off duty. But their palate's never off duty. So they're, yes, they're tasting, but they're also analysing and deconstructing the flavours as they taste, figuring out those subtle characters shaped by the different oak casks and the skills of the master blenders to produce these elegant whiskies. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our October 15th, 2023 issue. Our cover story is on whiskey for wine lovers. And we've got executive editor Jeffrey Lindemuth. He'll be joining us very shortly to tell us more about that. And he's bringing along a special guest from our sister publication, Whiskey Advocate. We'll also be talking to senior editor for news, Mitch Frank. We've got some big winery sales out in California this past month. And of course, we've got Dr. Vinny in here answering a question for us on collecting. That'll be a little bit later. First, I've got to check in with podcast director Rob Taylor. Great to see you, James. Good to be back in New York. It's been a month. I have quite the pile of mail sitting on my table at home. I wish that we could say it's fall weather for this fall issue, but I think it's 100 today. I know. I came back from cool Napa to scorching cauldron of September in in Manhattan. What's up? We brought you back for this unusually warm day for this very unusual issue of Wine Spectator. Yeah, what's going on here? Whiskey for wine lovers. I had a short-lived whiskey phase back in the day. Okay. Do you dabble in the darker arts? You know, I used to love bourbon and single malts and brown spirits in general got that love from my father. But over the years, I've just sort of gravitated to, to strictly wine. So I'm interested to see how we pull this one off. I know Jeffrey is excited to dive into that subject. But before we bring him on, I want to remind our listeners that the October 15th issue also includes Bruce Sanderson's White Burgundy Report. Mm-hmm. He says the 2020 Chardonnays are fresh and elegant, despite the hot, dry vintage. And we've also got senior editor Tim Fish's California Rhone Report in this issue. You know, back in the 90s, the Rhone varietals from California were thought to be the next big thing. The category never really broke out the way Pinot did, for example, but that doesn't mean there aren't lots of great wines. So from Napa and Sonoma to Apostle Robles in Santa Barbara, Tim's report is going to look at how Syrah, Grenache, and all those yummy Rhone varietals are doing these days. Well, I know as our in-house Rhone expert for many years that you love those grapes. I do. And don't miss our list of 100 global values featuring reds, whites, rosés, and sparkling wines from around the globe, all priced at $40 or less. That sounds like a good list to have handy. You're going to find all that and much more in Wine Spectator's October 15th issue. But let's get into our cover story. And for that, we're going to need Wine Spectator Executive Editor Jeffrey Lindemuth. Welcome back to the podcast, Jeffrey. Hey, James. Good to be here. So, Jeffrey, I'm a subscriber to the magazine. I get my copy in the mail, I sit down on the couch, I open it up, and my beloved wine magazine has a story on whiskey. What gives? How did, how did this come about? Well, first, uh, thanks for being a subscriber, James. We appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, we are first and foremost a wine magazine and always will be, mm-hmm. but we understand that our readers have other interests, so we may focus on cheese or cocktails, or in this case, whiskey. Okay. So Marvin R. Shankin, our editor and publisher, had a hunch that wine drinkers also enjoy whiskey. So he assigned Johnny McCormick, who is the contributing editor for our sister magazine, Whiskey Advocate, to nose around at the New York wine experience and get the inside story. Johnny has been writing for the magazine since 2006, and he's a senior taster specializing in Japanese whiskey, Irish whiskey, and world whiskeys. So he's the right man for the job. Okay, well, you've got me interested. 
I spoke with him for the podcast, so here's Johnny. <laughs> hey, Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Where are you joining us from today? Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me on. So I'm over in Scotland and uh, I'm surrounded by Scotch whiskey distilleries. Where else would you want to be? <laughs> well, thank you for doing this story called Whiskey for Wine Lovers. Can you tell me a little bit about how this came about? Okay, so rewind to last October, and I flew over to New York from Scotland, and I go to see Marvin in his office. Now, I'd not been over to the US since 2019, and it was great to see him, but we had a lot of catching up to do. And as we're talking, Marvin tells me he's had this idea about whether wine spectator readers and the world's top winemakers and chefs and everybody that attends the New York wine experience enjoy whiskey as well. And neither of us knew the answer. But I had a feeling his hunch was correct. So he sent me on a mission. Go and speak to the winemakers, speak to the attendees at the Critics' Choice Grand Tastings, find out what the attendees are saying over lunch during the seminar program. And you know what they said? We love whiskey. Marvin was right. Whiskey lovers and wine lovers are not separate groups of people. They're kindred spirits. Well, that's great. I read the story and it seems like you had no trouble finding wine drinkers who really appreciate whiskey. Tell me about what you heard from them. There was hardly anybody that didn't have an amazing whiskey anecdote or a favorite whiskey to recommend. Every single person said yes. Chef Eric Reaper, for example, he told me he enjoys a whiskey every night, but he lets his palate and what he's been eating during the day guide his choice. So sometimes he loves a peated scotch like Laphroaig. At other times, he's in the mood for a Japanese whiskey like Yamazaki. I spoke to Adrian Bridge, and he recalled launching the Taylor Fladgate Vintage Port 1994 in a restaurant in Paris. And he'd served this Scottish smoked salmon and a Talisker single malt from the Isle of Skye. And he described this match of the raw elemental character of the whiskey and how it paired with the beautiful Scottish smoked salmon. And he'd never looked back. So what I loved was that some people were into whiskey before they discovered great wine. And others approached whiskey through their appreciation of wine later on. So to some extent, their wine palate sculpted the style of whiskies they enjoyed. And I was fascinated that whiskey was what these iconic winemakers chose to drink when they were off duty. But their palate's never off duty. So they're, yes, they're tasting, but they're also analyzing and deconstructing the flavors as they taste, figuring out those subtle characters shaped by the different oak casks and the skills of the master blenders to produce these elegant whiskies. You know, they were obsessed by the craft and how they mastered that integration of the oak. It was truly fascinating. Well, it sounds like a lot of them had very uh, in-depth and serious knowledge of whiskey. And I think the champagne reception bore that out because while it was filled with great champagne, there was also a whiskey bar there that looked very, very popular. Did you uh, get to sample any of those? So this was new for 2022, where we opened the Whiskey Advocate Whiskies of the Year bar at the champagne reception. And what was on the bar was the number one whiskies of the year from the Whiskey Advocate Top 20 for the last five years. That's our whiskey equivalent to the Wine Spectator Top 100. So we had Lagavulin, 11-year-old Offerman edition, the Guinness cask finish. We had Larsenry bar Barrel Proof. We had George Dickel, 13-year-old Bottled in Bond. Nika from the Barrel from Japan and Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. And I couldn't believe the people queuing up for a whiskey. And it was when I was there that I bumped into Barry Roseman, who was one of the attendees I interviewed earlier, he was attending his 28th New York wine experience. And what was he drinking at the end of the show? He was sipping whiskey. 
But I think I also saw you there, Jeffrey, at one point. I did. I couldn't resist those whiskeys. And I think uh, as we closed the event, I said, well, what do you drink after having some of the most fantastic wines in the world? There's always whiskey. So look forward at the reception. And I understand uh, perhaps not those whiskeys, but we will have some great surprises for those uh, whiskey drinking wine lovers again this year. That's right. But um, now that the story's in Wine Spectator, Jeffrey, now that that's come out, I think we're going to need a bigger bar. (laughs) So why do you think some wine lovers find it quite easy to appreciate whiskey and others can find this drink kind of challenging? What's the hurdle there? I think if you're a wine lover, you're at a big advantage because learning about great wine, developing your palate and your flavor preferences just makes the perfect training for whiskey appreciation because wine lovers can pick out the aromatics from a glass of wine, whether it's fresh floral fruitiness or it's a deep berry sweetness. They can appreciate the use of oak and the skill of the blender and the time it takes for wines and whiskies to mature till they're at their peak. They know about serving good drinks in the right glassware. They know about collecting. They know about storing their bottles properly. And and many whiskies are matured in oak casts that previously contained wines or fortified wines. So there's that shared understanding. There's that crossover of familiar flavors. So I've always regarded whiskey as a destination category. You know, there's nowhere better to go. And once you're there, it takes a lifetime to explore. It's wonderful. I know that you appreciate both deeply. Are there instances where one or the other really excels for you? I think wine is more versatility for food pairing than whiskey. So a great dinner with the best quality ingredients or a top restaurant with a deep wine list, it's got to be wine with food for me in those circumstances. But not always. I mean, I love drinking whiskey outdoors. Last week, I was over in Isla, the origin of some of the world's greatest peaty whiskies. And we were on this small boat sailing along the south shores, past Bortelen, Lafroig, Lagavulin distilleries to Ardbeg. And we moored just off the coast, and we had this fantastic lunch of fresh lobster, brown crabs. They were barbecuing scallops at the back of the boat. And we opened a bottle of just Ardbeg 10-year-old. And it really doesn't get any better than that. So whiskey outdoors with great people. I mean, you can't beat it. Wow, that sounds amazing. I love whiskey with flavors of the sea or sitting around a campfire outside. Yeah, that's definitely a whiskey moment for me. That's a whiskey moment. Given that you like both whiskey and wine, I thought we'd put you on the spot here and help us make some decisions and do a quick lightning round called Whiskey or Wine. And Johnny McCormick's going to tell us what you would choose and perhaps why. That sounds good, although the answer might always be whiskey. (laughs) Well, let's see. Um, How about with a steak dinner? Okay, I'm going to stick with a nice, big, heavy, robust red wine for that. How about to buy for aging? To buy for aging? Well, I'm going, I'm sticking with my uh, Bordeaux then for that. Thanks very much. Yeah, because obviously whiskey does not age, correct? Uh, whiskey in doesn't age. It doesn't age in the bottle. No, unless you unless you buy it in the cask. How about if you had to buy one for your child's birth year? Oh, that's got to be whiskey. There was a really fascinating story last year of somebody who'd laid down 18-year-old McAllen for every single year of their child's life. And when that child reached a good age, they sold the entire collection and was able to put a deposit on a house. Oh, so whiskey over vintage port there. That surprises me. Well, here's a related one. Which do you buy as an investment? Oh, whiskey. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. The whiskey market has grown over the last 30 years. And, you know, we've now had several bottles of whiskey that have sold for more than a million dollars at auction. Okay. Johnny is not a licensed financial advisor. Please consult your individual 
uh, consultant. What if I gave you only $25 to spend? Uh, I would go to a bar with the $25. <laughs> <laughs> Have one of each. Fair and, enough. Yeah, or, or a beer for both of us. <laughs> And, uh, of course, the perennial classic, your desert island drink. You have one final drink with you, one bottle to take to your desert island, wine or whiskey? It's definitely whiskey because I'm going to get a lot more pause and pleasure. The wine will be gone too quickly. <laughs> All right, Johnny, that was fun. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. And I hope that many of our wine-loving audience will continue to discover whiskey through this story. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a fun interview, Jeffrey. Thanks for that. Thanks, James. It was a pleasure, and I hope we've rekindled your fondness for great whiskey. I think so. All right, we'll see you next time. This past month was a busy one for winery sales in California. Thankfully, we've got Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank, here to help us sort through it all. Welcome back, Mitch. Hey, guys. Uh, count me in the group of wine lovers who also love whiskey, but I'm guessing you did not invite me for a drink, did you? Sadly, no. We got a little work to do first here and get through all these deals. Common story. <laughs> first up is the sale of Spring Mountain Vineyard. It wasn't a surprise that it sold. It was having hard times. There was significant damage after the 2020 wildfires. And its owners seemed uh, maybe a bit disinterested in getting it back up to full speed. So tell us who has stepped in here and, and what's the plan? Spring Mountain Vineyard is a fascinating winery with a lot of history and also untapped potential. It's also kind of a, a new story we're seeing in the wine industry where private equity is seeing opportunities. Now, private equity funds tend to have limited windows. They, they're looking usually to turn around an asset in five to 10 years. And Spring Mountain really provides a lot of opportunity for them. So going back, banker Jacob Safra bought the former Miraval estate, which had been renamed Spring Mountain Vineyard in 1992. People might recognize the property from being the site of the 1980s TV show Falcon Crest. It used to come on. I'd see the intro when I was watching Dallas as a kid. Mm -hmm. So... Safra then added neighboring estates, Chevalier, Alba, and La Perla in 1993 and 1996. That gave him 847 acres of land with 225 acres of hillside vineyards. A lot of different vineyard blocks, a lot of different soil types, a lot of different altitudes on the west side of Napa Valley. Many Napa insiders feel that the site's full potential remains untapped. In recent years, he struggled financially and had to take on loans from MGG, a New York investment fund. Then the wildfires of 2020 exacerbated the situation, and the winery filed for bankruptcy in September of 2022. MGG bought it at auction. So, James, you're familiar with the wines and the vineyards. What do you think of the site? Well, you're right when you say that it's a it's difficult site to manage, and there's a lot of variability there in the soils, elevations, exposures. But then that's the diamond in the rough part of it. If they can get those vineyards... Replanted, and I believe MGG has said they're going to replant all 200 and some odd acres of it and add a little bit more, and then they really modernize the facility. They are sitting on a potentially very exciting property. Spring Mountain is home to La Coya and Philip Tawney and a lot of these old school cabs, and Spring Mountain Vineyard is in that mold, and the wines age well. I've had them back from the 80s and 90s, and they're still growing strong in some vintages. So this is one to keep an eye on going forward. That's for sure. Next up, Gallo. America's biggest wine company. They had a very busy week. 
Uh, they made headlines by buying Rombauer Vineyards, which most people know for the big buttery style Chardonnay that's uh, quite popular, and they sell a lot of that. As a popular and profitable brand, I can see why Gallo and many others would probably want to gobble up Rombauer, but was this sale expected? Uh, no. Rombauer being sold to Gallo was not on my bingo card at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Uh, Rombauer has been behaving like a company that expects to grow and expand and not be acquired. They've been investing and buying more vineyards in recent years. They now own 700 acres of vineyards, many of them in Napa Valley and Carneros. They have three winery facilities and two tasting rooms. And they have a very loyal group of customers. People love the Chardonnay. It's a particular style and it built their name. But they're also known for some pretty impressive Sauvignon Blancs. They make a few red wines. And they even began producing Pinot Noir in the past year. But uh, founder Kerner Rombauer passed away five years ago. And his children own the winery, and some of their kids have gotten involved too. But it might be that they decided it was time to hand off the company. And Gallo, being another family-owned company, was an attractive suitor. 700 acres of vineyards, three winery facilities, two tasting rooms, a partridge in a pear tree. Any word on the purchase price for that? Well, they're both privately owned, and they're not saying how much the deal was for. But several sources in Napa have told me that they think the price tag is close to $700 million or more. Mm -hmm. Expensive? Yes. But you mentioned all those assets, especially the vineyards, which don't come cheap. And sure. it's a brand that makes 350,000 cases of wine a year with a very loyal customer base. Gallo is already very keen to reinsure all of those customers that nothing's going to change. They're keeping the winemaker. They're keeping much of the leadership and they can expect big things going forward. And Gallo wasn't done. They made another deal. This one a little smaller in scale, but no less significant. Yeah, just two days after the Rombauer news, Gallo announced that it had bought Masakan. Now, Masakan produces white wine, but that's about all it has in common with Rombauer. Moscon is a one-man show, founded in 2009 by Dan Petrosky, who used to be the winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards. Petrosky is a fascinating guy. He's full of ideas, a lot of energy. And so it was not a big surprise in 2009 when he wanted a side project from his day job making Cabernet. And he had first learned winemaking in Italy. So he started buying lesser-known Italian white grapes like Rubola Gialla and Tokai Frulliano and making small lots of wine. He eventually left Larkmead to focus full-time on Masakon. It's still just him. He buys all the grapes, and total production is under 10,000 cases a year. Petrosky told me that Joseph C. Gallo, Ernest's grandson, who heads Gallo's premium wine division, met up with him about a year ago and told him he was a big fan of the wines. They kept talking over the months, and eventually they decided to make a deal. Gallo has bought Masakon, but Petrosky will remain as the winemaker for the long term. And this gives him the capital and the resources to grow the winery. He's aiming to maybe even expand as much as to 100,000 cases a year. So these deals are interesting because they're similar but quite different. Big buttery Chardonnay with a six-figure case production already in the works. And then the sort of lighter, fresher Italian-style whites in the four-figure case production. What's the connection here, if any? 
Well, while Massacon is different than Rombauer, they do share two qualities that Gallo is obviously looking for. First, both produce premium wines priced at $30 a bottle and up. That's really the growth category in wine these days. And they both have a loyal customer base, whether for Rombauer, it's kind of uh, consumers 40 and up. And for Massacon, it tends to be those younger consumers. The deals also clearly indicate that Gallo sees growth potential in white wine. Uh, so maybe it's a sign that red blends are still popular, but consumers are also looking for white wines, interesting ones, more these days. And you mentioned Petrosky is a fascinating guy. Uh, we had him on back in episode six. You interviewed him about the future of wine. He had a lot to say about that. And this is also going to be pretty interesting to watch what he does with his brand now in the Gallo umbrella going forward. I guess the question is, Mitch, are we drinking white wine or whiskey after this episode? Uh, it's been a long day. I think some scotch is in order. Okay. <laughs> All right, Mitch, thanks for joining us again. It was a busy week in the winery sales and acquisition department, and you helped us sort through it. We will see you soon, I'm sure. Anytime, guys. Thanks. It's time once again to welcome our very wise wine advice columnist back to the program. Hey, Dr. Venny, I have a new mailbag question for you, and it comes from virtually everyone. <laughs> yeah, there are some questions that come through our mailbag over and over again. Hit me, Rob. Which one is it today? This one's a bit of a Mad Lib, so bear with me. Dear Dr. Venny, I found a bottle of, insert random old wine here, in a, insert, cupboard, garage, attic, crypt, beaver's dam, is this wine delicious, and what is it worth from many people in many places? Oh, yes, Rob, this question. We get this from a lot of, of readers, and it has many variations, although I've never heard of the beaver's dam before. Um, so let me let me talk in generalities, because I think that's the best way to approach this. Um, first off, this ain't no antique roadshow. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I wish that it was. I know, me too. So first off, I just want to point out that for a wine to age and to taste really good, it has to be aged properly. So that crypt or that beaver's dam you were mentioning are probably not going to cut it. If you want to age a wine, you need really good storage conditions, constant, humid, 55 degrees temperature away from light, heat, temperature, fluctuation, and vibration. And even with all those variables accounted for, there's no guarantee that a wine will make it for the long haul. I also want to pull out my soapbox. May I, Rob, real quick? Oh, please do. Hop on up there. <laughs> so just because a wine is old doesn't mean it's delicious. There are some wines that age beautifully and evolve into these these miracles and these time capsules, and it's so incredible. But most wine is perfectly fine when it's young and doesn't necessarily get better with age. And that's usually how wine is consumed these days. If you think you want to age your wines, you should not do that until A, you have the cellar conditions to do it. And B, you know that you like old wine. If you typically drink wines as they're being released, you might not enjoy wines that are aged. They they definitely taste different. I, I can't always say it's better, but it's definitely different. So don't invest in aging your wine unless you know you like it. The good news, though, before we move forward is I just want to point out that drinking an old wine will not make you sick. It might be unpleasant, but it's not going to send you to the hospital. And 
there's no way to tell if a wine is going to taste good unless you, you have to open that sucker up, Rob, and you have to taste it. So will it make you rich to find this old bottle in your attic? Probably not. Aww. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you think you have a gem, you can try and find if there's a market by contacting some wine merchants or maybe the original producer of the wine. There are wine auctions and absolutely older wines make a ton of money in the auction market. But let me point out, they're going to ask for documentation on how the wine was stored. They're not going to like the beaver dam crypt thing. <laughs> <laughs> and they prefer to deal with larger collections rather than individual bottles. So we're talking verticals or, you know, wine in its original packaging. The labels have to look pristine. But yeah, finding a random bottle of wine is probably not going to be of interest to the auction house. But Rob, there's some really good news. Give me the good news, Doc. The good news is that it's an excuse to open that bottle with some loved ones or some friends and see how it's doing. I mean, it, it might be weird. It might be delicious. It might be delicious and then gets really weird. But that's where the real value is, Rob. Yeah. Get out there and make some memories. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But keep the questions coming, people. I love them. For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her free weekly column at our website, or email us your questions right here at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Woohoo! Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. James, have you ever uncovered a mysterious old bottle of wine? Maybe not so mysterious, but I've been in a few people's basements and they've had something they wanted to show me, and, and it's often kind of fun to see the stuff that people hang on to for a long, long time. Well, from something old to something new, Ooh. in just a few short weeks, we'll have a very special guest for episode 14 of Wine Spectator's Straight Talk podcast. Mm -hmm. Emmy-winning actress, producer, and New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc star Sarah Jessica Parker will be joining us. Wow. Along with senior editor Marianne Wobick. We'll also be talking Tuscany with senior editor Bruce Sanderson and much more. Until then, our listeners can email us their questions or just drop us a line at straighttalkatwinespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, X, and YouTube. We're calling it X now. Okay. How about that bonus wine pick we've all been waiting for? Yeah, if you wait around this long, I give you guys a sneak peek at a wine that uh, hasn't appeared in print yet. It's the Syrah Santa Barbara County Colson Canyon Vineyard. 2021 vintage from Tensley. Now, this was rated 94 points by our colleague Tim Fish, and there's 1,600 cases of it, so you will be able to find it. He describes it as having a brooding personality with intense blackberry, raspberry, and stony mineral notes. I've always liked what Tensley does. They make really delicious wines. So they need a little more attention, and you can track down their Syrah, Santa Barbara County, Colson Canyon Vineyard 2021, and then check out our California Rome Report in the current October 15 issue. Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you, as always, to share when you drink the good stuff. Mm -hmm.